Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Lee Edwards of Root VC and Trey Vassallo of DeFi VC. Lee, Trey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. So uh, we're here today to talk about hard tech, deep tech. Lee, why don't you give a brief background of how this podcast came to be and what you're most excited to, to get into? Yeah, I think Root Ventures uh, is kind of known as a hardware-focused fund by a lot of people. And um, so we had talked a little bit ago about kind of the nuances and specifics of hardware investing. But I think one thing that we are finding is that if you do a little bit of hardware investment, everyone just calls you kind of a hardware fund. Um, so a, a majority of our companies actually are dealing with software and a good number of them are in pure software. But I think there's some interesting similarities when you talk about how do you invest in a company where technical challenge, technical roadmap, product development, as distinct from, say, like science R&D, but when roadmap and, and tech are like a primary risk, uh, what's kind of different about it? And so Trey has some great experience and stuff like this. So I, I thought it'd be awesome to hear her perspective as well. Trey, uh, from what perspective do you approach it and how have you approached it over time? Or how's it evolved over time? Yeah, well, and I've gotten to know Lee over, gosh, the last few years and was super excited for, to see him joining Root. And, and obviously, you know, I, gosh, started my venture career in 2003. Before that, um, I was a co-founder of Good Technology. And, you know, we were an enterprise software company. We did have a bit of a hardware component and then we had software that ran on devices. And, and you know, prior to that, I was actually a mechanical engineer. And so my history was really as a product thinker, product person who had some expertise in what it took to actually build and ship hardware. And, um, you know, I saw that kind of circle back around through my time at Kleiner. I was at Kleiner for 11 years from 2003 to 2014. You know, through that time, I invested in everything from consumer companies to enterprise companies to a handful of companies that really did well that happened to have a hardware component. And those were Nest and Dropcam, you know, to name at least two that, that you know, people might have heard of. You know, I think to Lee's point, you know, a lot of people will associate, you know, if you've done one hardware company, you must love them all. And, you know, one of my things that I always talk a lot about is that part of the reason why, you know, especially Dropcam, why I loved that company so much was that it is a phenomenal software company that was solving a really hard software problem. But the hardware um, that they used enabled them to get access to new information, new data that wasn't previously accessible. And, and so it created a moat um, that gave them the ability to build this incredible software company and change how you know, users uh, interacted with cameras in the home in a really interesting way. And the amount of hardware risk they were taking was actually relatively minimal because they were using a commodity product and, and they were able to start with a sort of a dialed in commodity product, but then make it better and push the limits of those cameras over time in a really kind of nice way. Um, and so, you know, when you think about hardware and venture investing, it doesn't always have to be crazy, risky, you know, um, deep R&D sort of stuff either. You mentioned that if you do a, a couple hardware deals, you're, you're now the, the hardware investor of record. Is it because other people are just not willing to, to take that risk? And I'm curious if that's, if that's always been the case or if that 
there's been a sudden fall recently? And if so, what would it take to get back to it? Well, maybe I'll, I'll quick answer and then Lee, you can give your thoughts. But I, I think part of the issue is that most firms don't like hardware and they don't like hardware for very good reasons. You are constrained by distribution and your margins are ultimately, you know, going to be, uh, you know, slightly lower. And if you've got a problem in the field, you can't just ship an update. You know, you have, you have massive risks around hardware that are very different than software. And so I think Part of the issue is just that there are so far fewer investors that will consider it. So I think part of it is if you have done a hardware investment or two, it just shows that you're open to a whole other set of, of companies that, that other investors may not even want to look at. And has it always been the case or in your 11 years at Kleiner, was, was that always consistent? Uh, you know, I think it has changed a little bit um, in that, you know, when I started in the early 2000s, things like semiconductors were still really, you know, the, the industry has gone through these waves of innovation and every wave of innovation was ultimately catalyzed by a platform change, um, typically a computing platform change. You know, there were servers or like you can go even further back, different, you know, memories uh, and then different storage uh, mechanisms and then different types of computing platforms and, and tablets and, and then semiconductors. Conductors, And so I think, you know, when I was entering into the industry, there were a lot of investors who were expert in, in different types of hardware. And then through the 2000s, we had just an absolute explosion of, first of all, new investors coming into the industry, but also just the breadth with which software was revolutionizing everything. There's an app for, you know, absolutely everything. And, and the app store on your phone and, and kind of the phone ecosystem just, I think, really tipped that balance to so much more opportunity in software than ever before. With the rise of ClearBank and alternative financing models, some people are saying things like, or things along the lines of, that venture should go back to what, it's, uh, what it started doing, which is uh, focusing on technical risk at the expense of other things that perhaps should have other, you know, financing uh, mechanisms. What would you say to, is, is that resonate or would you debate that premise? I, I think there's something interesting there. I mean, when you look at, if you ever have any interest in like, uh, you know, if any of the audience has any interest in reading the history of venture capital, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff out there for people who are so inclined. But in the early days it was, I mean, VC was invented to, um, to be able to finance businesses that couldn't be financed otherwise. Um, there's a really interesting book that was popular a couple of years ago that I still recommend called uh, Financial Capital and Technological Revolutions by Carlotta Perez, who's a South American economist, who basically argues that at every stage of technology innovation, pretty much since the Industrial Revolution, financial capital has innovation at the same time that technology does. And so venture capital really was underwriting these silicon-based businesses that couldn't get a bank loan. And the deals looked super different back then, right? Like you had like Ben Rock buying Apple for, buying half of Apple for a million dollars or whatever that crazy deal was. I don't, I think it would be a little crazy to say that venture capital can't do well in other kinds of businesses because clearly it has. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, non-hard tech driven businesses that have done well under VC. But I think it's interesting to me how few VCs tend to, want to underwrite technical risk and find themselves gravitated towards business model innovation and things like that, which again are awesome. And I, you know, in my work history, I've tended to work at a lot of places like that as well. But to me, technical risk is just so exciting. And it feels like the thing that is, it has like such a 
high ceiling in terms of the potential. What do you think, Trey? You know, I think things like, you know, hey, we're going to help you with customer acquisition and everyone else should focus on the tech risk. I think that oversimplifies, you know, the problem set, actually. And, and I do think we're living in a period of time where, you know, customer acquisition is dominated by Google and Facebook and, um, you know, and won't stay that way forever. And so you've got a lot of businesses trying to figure out how to, how to break through this, this problem set right now. But when I think about fundamentally, you know, what is venture doing? Yes, there's the go to market stuff, but there's also things like building teams and people and simply scaling the internal organization. And, and that is separate from the tech risk um, and is separate from the other sort of outsourcing of customer acquisition that you can do. And so I, I think you can't, you can't ignore those things, but, but I do agree with, with Lee's point and that, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley was originally started by these sort of, you know, breakthrough technologies. And I think the thing that seems a little bit different today is that, um, you know, the barriers to entry have gotten lower. And so we see a lot more businesses that feel a lot more incremental, but where I also think there's a lot of interesting, I'd say exciting opportunities are in these areas where maybe the technology itself isn't um, truly breakthrough, but where you're connecting a technology that maybe has been vetted and, and kind of well used in a certain area, with a whole nother corner and a whole nother market. Um, and it would never found its way there except for a special team that understand the nuances of the problems in that market and the technology, you know, from another market and they're bringing those things together. And so, you know, I'd say one of the big trends that I've seen today is this kind of cross-fertilization of technologies into new markets, especially as tech is truly transforming and going deep into all different markets, whether it's GovTech and EdTech and, you know, how drugs are being discovered. All of these businesses are starting to be transformed. And, you know, the algorithms that we might be using in, you know, in a logistics company might have already been highly used in a you know, um, in another case, in another slightly different business, but they just haven't met before. So I also think that's a, another nuance that I think is also pretty exciting. Trey, you mentioned you started doing this in 2000, which is a lot longer than, than Lee and I have been, been doing this. So I'm curious for your perspective on this hypothesis I have, which is that as, as technology has become much more specialized, there, you know, there's been a rise of, of sector-specific funds and, and specialists. And so I'm curious how you... If I understand D5, it's a generalist fund. Feel free to edit that assumption. Think about how to be an expert in areas that have increasing, increasingly are becoming specialized. Yeah, no, I think it's a super interesting question. And, you know, I think any advice that, you know, I give someone who's new in the industry is to find your area where you are doubling down on your core strengths so that you can get out there and, and get some momentum in the market. And so I do think that that, you know, generally is a great, a great set of advice and a great way to kind of kickstart your career or kickstart a fund. But the interesting thing is if you look at very specific funds that have entered the market, they do tend to generalize over time because when you're building a portfolio, you know, one of the important things within this portfolio of companies is you, want, you do want to have the domain expertise, enough of it to make smart decisions, but you also don't want to be completely single threaded on a particular sector that might just be out of, you know, favor 
um, you know, in the time when these companies really start to become, you know, to, to sort of hit their stride. And some, you know, those, the timing of these markets are things you can't control. And so, yeah, Defy is a, we are um, a generalist firm. And so part of what we do to, to supplement for the fact that, you know, we are not going to be the smartest people in the room on any particular topic, uh, part of our strategy is to have a network of who we think are some of the smartest people in the world on very specific sectors. And that's part of the reason why we um, started our Defy Sage program. Uh, it is you know, us basically saying, hey, we work really closely with these active CEOs who are operating in these markets, who help us analyze and then ultimately add value to portfolio companies in a way that you can't do it if you're a venture investor because once you you know step out of the operating side of things, you know your skills they're going to atrophy. And our expertise as investors is really in you know kind of the network and leveraging that network to make the smartest decisions we can. Sounds like a good strategy. Yeah, it's interesting. Having been at Root, we have, and I think you know um, two of the three other partners, Trey. One one thing that we try to do, I definitely agree how quickly skills atrophy. Um, especially technical skills, but like we have a lot of equipment, I would say around the office from three <laughs> yeah. stay, stay active. Huh? And, yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm writing code all the time. A lot of times for like internal kind of process automation stuff. I actually have a software intern this summer, a shout out to Adams from dorm room fund. So yeah, I think that we think that by essentially continuing to build and just sort of be engineers and kind of the core of our identity, we're trying to stay somewhat fresh. I think it's, you know, that being said, it's absolutely true that, you know, we are not the, the world's best engineers in any particular vertical. But it's interesting, you've somehow managed to stay up to speed with a lot of your technical skills. I was just talking to Chrissy, our partner, earlier today about a phone call we had had a couple months ago doing diligence on a company where the two of you sort of broke down the bill of materials on like an extremely detailed basis, <laughs> the components of the bomb. So Chrissy was uh, EPM at Apple. Uh, Chrissy Meyer. She was working on the Apple watch uh, edition one and iPod touch iPod nano. So she's also got a strong supply chain um, background. So listening to that conversation, the first thing that I was thinking while the two of you were basically running, you know, a mile a minute, <laughs> oh my God. Other in investors that don't have this kind of background, it would take them a lot of time to diligence something like this that I just observed happen in like, you know, three minutes. Um, and it gave us some like really interesting insight in, into the conversation and the conclusions we got to. So I think we, we tend to view that when it comes to hard tech, having some background can be helpful. And that's, you know, it's certainly not a uh, exclusive or absolutist statement. Obviously some of the greatest investors and some of the most technically challenging companies have, you know, come from finance backgrounds or have been CEOs at, at less technical companies, but just one way we try to sort of differentiate. Yeah. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the scope of what, uh, what you sort of put, you know, put in hard tech, deep tech. Do you want to take a stab at what sort of sub areas, you know, does hard tech comprise? Yeah, I think, when we say hard tech, a lot of time, we, we kind of use that word intentionally. A lot of times people immediately jump to hardware, as I mentioned. But the area that I'm focusing on looking at specifically, I call hard software. So what are the areas in software that carry a lot of technical risk that, let's say, require pretty deep engineering expertise uh, on the team? So one example of a company in our portfolio is called Entopology. They're doing CAD software 
computer assisted design. So you can think of sort of SolidWorks Pro Engineer, AutoCAD, those kinds of that kind of software. But what they're doing is a technique called generative CAD, where you can essentially create the um, the sort of equations that govern the design constraints on the part, and uh, the system can sort of optimize and, and and generate solids that satisfy the equations. And so what this lets people do is design really advanced uh, structures, say like complex internal lattice structures, and that you sort of couldn't do before um, or couldn't do easily. And uh, it also kind of enables a lot of, it unlocks a lot of capability of additive manufacturing. So I'm not allowed to get specific, but if you're listening to this podcast, you have almost definitely seen one of these parts um, somewhere. There's a, a number of really great customers. Um, so that's a pure software company. The customer happens to be a mechanical design engineer but when we consider this hard tech. Yeah. If, if we're if five years from now, we're coming back on this podcast and every venture capital firm is getting into hard tech, uh, sort of all the rate, like what would have, what is most likely uh, happened? Like what, why would that be true? Like where would the big companies come from? Sure. I mean, maybe I'll throw out a couple, couple of thoughts. So, you know, part of what I've been looking at is companies that um, are enabling the, maybe the hardware ecosystems to sort of evolve in a way that's parallel to what we've seen happen with the software world. And so the interesting thing is if you look at, you know, how developing, just take any kind of web based company or app based company, you know, back in the, you know, early two thousands, late nineties, you know, people had to build their servers, um, you know, then launch their, you know, launch their app and every little part of that infrastructure they had to do themselves. And, Gradually, you know, things like AWS and all of these other tools have made launching a website something that, you know, my high schooler can do successfully. And um, when you look at the hardware side of the world, you know, to, to Lee's point about one of the incredible tools his, his portfolio is working on, a lot of these things still have to be homegrown and done internally. Even things, you know, like recently I've been looking at, you know, some of these marketplaces around just simply matching you know, the, the makers with the builders, you know, whether it's like the fictives of the world or, or some of these other companies out there, there are so many places where, again, taking sort of software and ecosystems that we know how to build in other places, getting the timing right, and, and then figuring out how to launch those into, you know, the hardware side of the world, I think it's going to look dramatically you know, what it takes to actually build, um, you know, a device from scratch is going to look dramatically different in five years than it does today. Yeah, I, 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 that's something we definitely talk about a lot. One of, one of our early companies uh, is called Particle that essentially tries to bring a hardware. I'm a huge fan of Particle. They're awesome. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so another, another trend that I think is interesting, kind of similarly, is again, kind of looking at how software developers build software. Andrew Ang uh, recently had a tweet saying that data science and data engineering tools are a ghetto, which is something I've been saying for a long time, but he said it sort of more succinctly and with a lot more uh, expertise uh, behind it. But if you think about the way that, exactly as you described, I think data engineering tools to me feel like mechanical CAD tools did back when I was a mechanical uh, design engineer like a decade ago. DLMs were kind of the, the state of the art of how you maintain internal, internal systems of record and how you collaborate on files. But at the end of the day, many, many, many companies, including you know, the one that I was at, would have 
Windows file folders full of final underscore one, you know, actually final underscore two, whatever. And you see that with like Jupyter notebooks um, in a lot of, in most companies. And you certainly yes. see that with production databases and data warehouses and data pipelines and ETL tasks. Um, and the other reason I think this might be a really interesting trend is it feels like when you talk to people that deal with this stuff, they know it's a pain point and they basically say, I don't know how else you solve it really. It just kind of works. We work around it. It kind of works. Right. That, that, to me, that either that's true or there's a real opportunity here that's kind of not obvious, um, but someone with kind of the right ideas. And, and I've seen a few companies that are tackling this. Uh, but yeah, I d I'm definitely a big believer that looking at the model of how software is developed and applying that to other kinds of creators, inventors, engineers, artists, innovators, just about reducing friction and, and, and tightening feedback loops. Yeah, you actually reminded me. So I caught up with a, a, a friend, um, Joe DeSimone, who's the founder of Carbon, um, which is one of these additive 3D companies. And, um, you know, got the kind of most recent tour and saw the stuff that they're working on. And these guys are actually building, you know, they're, they've got a deal with Adidas and they're building really cool, uh, you know, soles of shoes and, and you know, their yeah. dental industry is, is on fire. And and the thing, the conversation that was so inspiring to me is how, if you look at how much the, the tools and the processes restrict the creativity and, you know, with a company that you were talking about, like all these new tools and all these new ways to make things actually opens up the possibility of making things that we couldn't ever make before um, because it was just impossible because of the tools. And so that's a whole nother level of, you know, stuff is also dramatically changing and is also really, really hard. <laughs> totally. And to circle back to the idea of, you know, certain kinds of investors and investing in certain kinds of things, Trey, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to about entopology who have just sort of not really understood what I meant. Mm -hmm. You can't design this because design for manufacturer is not something everyone takes, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know yeah. what it means to, you know, can you make this with a ball end mill? Is, are there undercuts? Is your draft angle big enough? Like all these questions that go away in additive manufacturing. It can be hard. It can, I think that it takes the kind of investor who understands that stuff to understand, you know, those are problems that even need to be solved. That's right. Let's, uh, let's talk about robotics a little bit. Uh, Lee, perhaps you could define how, how you think about what robotics is and how people should think about it and then yeah. where you're excited there. Yeah. So robotic, this is like the definition of robotics feels like one of the oldest conversations in, in, technology or especially people that work in robotics, but I tend to think of it as some kind of machine that doesn't automate a task that relieves human labor. Uh, I did not invent this and I don't remember where to attribute it to, but, but I actually, I absolutely love it that the washing machine is the most successful robot ever created um, because it, it basically freed half of the, the world's population. The, there's one in every home uh, and the number of hours it saves is insane. So I, I think whether robots are telepresence oriented or, or autonomous, it's kind of up for, up for your own definition. But one area that I find super exciting in robotics that, that centers around software is um, if you look at some of the research OpenAI put out around the grasping manipulator, there's a few really interesting technologies that powered that. One is the sort of use of simulations to train machine learning models, and that this is beyond robotics, but has a particularly great application in robotics, where instead of having some physical hardware in a bunch of different labs in a bunch of different environments, if you can create an accurate enough simulation, you can create meaningful training data that will train models 
either say computer vision models or, or anything like that to make the robot make sort of more intelligent decisions. And partly that's enabled by the proliferation of really high power GPUs and other kinds of compute on the edge and low latency connectivity to the cloud. These are things when I was at iRobot in 2007 was when I joined, we had a Pentium 2 on the robot that I worked on. So <laughs> training machine learning models was not something we were going to be doing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that to me, it feels so, so early in terms of how we're applying machine learning and AI and computer vision to robotics. So where are you looking at venture opportunities in this space? So we love, we love automation in industries that we feel are overlooked. I think this is, a, this is another area where people don't often think about agriculture warehouses, fulfillment centers, uh, shipping, logistics, all these kinds of things. And so Kane, Kane Shea at our, at our firm is, is really deep into industrial automation. I think that's, I think that's certainly one area that um, you, can, you can see kind of the macroeconomic tailwinds for why industrial automation has a, has a time to exist now. Um, with the cost of labor going up, with full employment happening, with lots of trends you're seeing in this country, you're also seeing elsewhere in the UK immigration policy, things like this are really impacting the cost of how things get made. So yeah, I love, I love taking a look at that. I mean, we've, we've certainly have at least one consumer hardware company, depending on how you define it, but we find that our wheelhouse is to really look at, you know, what's under the surface of what runs the economy. Jay, how do you view this base and how do you view opportunities within it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to add much to what, what Lee said. I think, you know, I think when people do think about robotics, they often tend to think of, you know, purely industrial robots. And I do think that it's, it's, you know, I always thought of the Nest thermostat, you know, I was involved in Nest and I always thought of that as a robot because effectively you're sensing and you're taking action on behalf of somebody. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be mobile, but it has to be sensing. It has to be automated in some intelligent way. And, and that kind of opens the universe up quite broadly you know, I think the thing that's interesting is that the opportunities to bring kind of robotics into a lot of industry is really big, but the problem that's facing at least the venture industry is these are customers and and customer sets that most venture folks don't know very well. And if I look at where, you know, the venture industry has messed up in the past where a lot of money has gone in and not a lot of great returns have happened have often been in areas where, the technology might be really cool and work really well, but assumptions around how those businesses scale, grow, adopt technology um, might be wrong. And so, you know, I'd say this is one of these areas where, um, at least at Defy, we're, we're spending a fair amount of time getting smart, but also recognize that, you know, warehouses, for example, it's not a market that we know as well as we, we need to. And so, you know, that is one of those areas where, you know, we need to, to strengthen the set of, of experts in, in our ecosystem. And, and I, I love Lee's point about, you know, uh, kind of bringing technology to areas that may seem less exciting or, or kind of, you know, maybe not everybody's focused on it. We love those things too. And in fact, you know, uh, logistics is one of those areas where it's one of our most exciting companies is in the logistics sector. And it was a great example. It's not robotics, but it, it is more of, you know, bringing, um, you know, information tech and, and kind of marketplace tech into um, this area in, in a clever way. And so the, you know, I think the point there was that there are a lot of these industries, you know, whether it's robotics or even software, you know, where the time is now to start 
deploying some really great technology that, you know, can drive a lot of business opportunities. Yeah, and thinking, thinking back to the question of the other interesting trends, something Trey said earlier about how great companies can come out of the sort of why now of hardware developments. I think one trend that we talk about a lot, we talk about the, the, the phrase, the peace dividends of smartphone wars is, is something people talk about. A lot. Yeah, so the, love it. Totally. It's like the, the existence of GPS antennas, right, which, you know, even, even the, the GPS antenna and module itself has gone down in a huge amount in cost, the availability of IMUs, you know, all the stuff, edge compute. But we talk about the peace dividends of the smart car wars, so uh, of the self-driving car wars. Well. Yeah. Because I think, you know, venture, I don't know how many people are sort of investing right now in venture in new self-driving car companies. It's not, certainly not something we've done. But we're really excited at whoever wins this thing or which, you know, whichever large set of companies wins this thing. We're going to have cheap, highly capable LiDAR. there's and there's going to be some amazing software out there there's going to be probably lots of cool i mean a lot of that simulation based training that i referred to that's been in in a lot of these companies so even just the techniques and the talent and if you even think about centers of talent in the u.s like i'm i'm excited for the startup explosion in pittsburgh and uh, you know i think i think there's some really really great stuff coming out of that as a trend yeah, you actually, Lee, you made me think of two things. One is that we always love to look at an industry that's, you know, there's clearly a lot of change like autonomy and try to figure out what's an orthogonal way to view that industry that might be an interesting approach to making a dent in that industry that other people aren't thinking of. And an example of that around autonomy is that, you know, we founded Defy um, in 2016. First fund closed in 2017. And so we kind of missed that first wave of investing in autonomy. But what we did have were some really interesting relationships with folks who really understood, you know, 24-7 video, uh, especially through Dropcam and Nest. And so we ended up investing in a company called Owl, which is a consumer-facing hardware company. It's starting as more aftermarket. It's a, you know, it's basically uh, if you wanted to put a Nest Cam in your car, that's what they do. But it turns out it's hard because you don't have Wi-Fi in your car, and so you have to do a lot of local edge processing, figure out what's important. You know, what do you alert the driver to or the the owner to because it works whether you're in the car or not. And um, and and that's really been a fascinating example of a company that we invested in where they now have over 110 million miles of you know, driving data and real roadside data and learning data that they have through their system, you know, through something that's not even focused on autonomy, but the data set and what they're doing actually is hugely relevant to autonomy. So I think that's also just another way to look at some of this hard tech stuff is how do you flip it on its side and maybe solve a slightly different set of problems. Um, And in Owl's case, it's all about car security. Um, and keeping tabs on this important asset, whether you're a fleet owner or a, a consumer owner of a car. And, and then the other point I wanted to make was your point about, you know, teams in other locations. So, you know, it's never been harder to hire an engineer in the Valley. Um, and at least my whole uh, experience uh, being in tech or an investor here. And so what that means is that basically every single portfolio company that we have has a, an engineering team or some kind of team in a different location, often in the U.S. So this isn't outsourcing to, you know, Eastern Europe or, or some remote part of the world. This is outsourcing to Montreal or Atlanta, Georgia. 
And I do think that's a really fascinating new trend that does point to, you know, in five, 10 years, you're going to have pockets of technical excellence that are going to be much more distributed than they've ever been. Yeah, it's really interesting. A little bit of a sidebar, but to the extent that some of the hard tech we're talking about is hardware, there is at least one example of a company in our portfolio that's done this well, but it seems to me to be incredibly difficult, much more difficult to do a distributed hardware team than it is to do a distributed software team. Curious on your thoughts about that and maybe things you've seen in your portfolio as well. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I I do think when you distribute the teams, um, they sort of have to still be in groups. (laughs) And I'd say where I have seen distributed hardware teams work well is that virtually any company that I've worked with that had a team that was manufacturing a product in, in Asia, which is all of them had an on the ground team in Asia um, that, you know, what they're, where they were hundred percent focused on building the product for our company, but were also deeply embedded in the supplier, the manufacturer in the country they were in. Um, because I think where a lot of companies who are making hardware fall down is the um, managing the external relationships with all the service providers. Those are really, really hard, and, and you effectively need to implant you know, people from your organization into those companies. So, so oftentimes, hardware does have you know, an Asia team and a U.S. team, but they're, they're two teams with heft that then know how to communicate with each other. Lee, why don't we talk a bit about dev tools? What are sort of the trends that are making that interesting for you and where are you excited to see opportunities within the space? So I, can, I consider tools and services for developers to be one of the areas of hard tech that I'm really interested in. I think there are a lot of very sort of specific and technical trends. Like I think containerization in Kubernetes has definitely been around for a little bit and I'm seeing lots and lots of uh, companies trying to build on top of that. Also definitely seeing a lot of companies that are looking at ways to try to try to sort of, yeah, as I was talking about earlier, kind of improve the, the tool chain for data science and, and data engineering and make it sort of more of, make those things kind of much more of a first-class citizen. Well, I guess the reality is that th- those, those components of the architecture already are first-class citizens, but the tooling is, is maybe lagging behind. I'm also really interested in, I think sometimes people can kind of overestimate how easily deployable machine learning is. A lot of times when you talk to investors and they're like, oh, well, you know, computer vision, that's just, that's so easy these days. There's TensorFlow that's, and there's ImageNet. And, and that is true to some extent, but I'm really interested in how you sort of turn the, say the 1X engineer, the half of developers who are below average, I would say, which I'd put myself in this bucket. How do you make these people incredibly more capable? If you look at, when people, the time when people used to build all their own CMSs and then WordPress came around and sort of raised the floor, how hard it was to sort of process credit card transactions on the internet until Stripe came around and made it doable in six lines. You're constantly seeing the floor rise for what can you do? What used to be hard becomes kind of easy and what used to be easy becomes free. And then what's the next frontier of what's difficult? I'm really interested in that ecosystem. And I think that there's always going to be a frontier like that. And it's just kind of a question of, you know, finding the next um, company that wants to provide this stuff more easily, right? I think some good examples of companies I'm talking about are things like Elasticsearch, even things like PagerDuty. In the last couple of years, we've seen a ton of IPOs in, in kind of a single billion dollar sizing, but also obviously the GitHub exit. You're seeing a lot of these big companies being very acquisitive in this space, um, particularly Microsoft. So yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a super exciting area. And I think for me, it's really fun because the, the developer consumer 
if you want to call them that, is such an interesting beast. They're not an enterprise customer. They're not really a consumer customer. They're still somewhat affected by brand. They're, they're somewhat affected by trends. They're kind of making decisions for themselves, and they think a lot about usability. You think about like developer UX, but at the same time, they're also using these things professionally and are interested in kind of the quality and quantity of the output. So something I've been thinking about, I don't know that enough has been sort of written about thinking about, you know, sort of business to developer as a kind of go-to-market. Trey, how have you viewed the space and how do you view the opportunities within it today? You know, I can't say that we've necessarily been focused on that specifically. You know, I think I do love Lee's point about raising the floor and things that, um, you know, required, you know, a lot of knowledge today are a couple of lines of code. I think that makes a ton of sense. So I don't know that I've got um, a, a great point of view for you specifically on tools. I do think we have been looking at a bunch of kind of product-centric things that may be less about ops, but more about how can you just look for, you know, how your customers are using and interacting with your product and more seamlessly fold that back into your product development because there is such a breakdown between what happens operationally and what gets fed back into your product creation. And I'm, you know, I'm a product person. And so I love to start with first principles on around, you know, what's the problem you're solving for your customer and are you doing that in a, um, in an efficient way and how are we measuring that and how can we more effectively create those, those feedback loops? So I do think that's, that's an interesting area. Um, I do want to highlight a point that Lee was making about kind of selling to the, this particular customer. One thing that the point of view that we have at Defy that is I think slightly different than some firms is that we do not see the world as consumer or enterprise. Hmm. We actually think that that distinction is pretty old school and, you know, and yes, there are companies that, you know, it's, it's a big old enterprise sale, but when you think about it, you do have to care a lot more about the ease of use of the product and the people who are using the product matter a lot more in the buying of the product um, and even the biggest consumer companies are ultimately enterprise sales on the back end. You know, Facebook has an enterprise ad sales um, back end. And so we definitely take much more of a, I'd say, a, a blended view around um, all of our companies that we're invested in tend to have elements of what we would call kind of direct-to-consumer strategies around how they're talking about themselves, product usability, virality, all the way through to, you know, even Owl, which is our started out as a consumer product, um, is doing very large enterprise sales today. And so kind of being a bit more fluid on the go-to-market and not seeing it as black and white, I do think is an important difference. Um, is not answering the question you asked, but, but was certainly catalyzed by, by Lee's point about, you know, these, these dev folks are, are kind of different. They're both enterprise and consumer in many ways. I think that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you look at, especially the wave of enterprise companies that have gotten, that are sort of on the rise in the VC world, like the, I'll, uh, I'll name drop my roommate's company, Lever, um, <laughs> right? Partly, partly successful because recruiters demand a good UX. Yeah. When the, when the person who's using the products responsible or more responsible for the buying of it, it starts to look a lot more like a, you know, historically consumer product, right? Trey, what other subsectors or, or subcategories would you put in this sort of hard tech bucket that you are excited yeah. about? 
Yeah, well, so it's it's uh, good timing because I'm just finishing up doing a, a deep dive on a space tech company. <laughs> so I would definitely categorize that in this sector. And, you know, part of why I find it so fascinating is that, you know, it's a, it's a new emerging supply chain. So while there is a lot of new hardware and a lot of new suppliers, there are also old suppliers bridging to new software and new tech. And so I, I am still kind of getting the lay of the land, but I'm excited by the fact that there are some really interesting software-only opportunities. There are some very interesting, you know, changing the business model opportunities. And then there's some very interesting fundamental kind of, we've got an interesting new piece of technology opportunities. And it's a market that, you know, absolutely has to get bigger, you know, and it's, and it's basically going through what was a very nationalized government-driven industry to one that has become privatized. And so I think there's a lot of fascinating opportunity. We've not made an investment yet in the sector, but, you know, it's one where we're, we're doing a deep dive. Have you guys looked at space? Um, we haven't. As an angel investor, I had one extremely small investment in a space company. Yeah, we're, it's something we're definitely open to. And, and, and where, are you, where are you looking within the space of trade? Where do you expect to, and like, what part of the stack do you expect to invest or, or be excited about? Yeah, you know, so right now, based on my kind of early spending time in the industry, it's it's going to be less around the, you know, hey, we've got a new kind of rocket booster thing um, or a piece of, of hardware. And it's going to be more around the integration of data um, and even new business models around helping customers solve a problem. You know, because this has been an industry where everything has been entirely verticalized. And now... You know, again, to, to Lee's point about raising the floor, there are opportunities to pick off certain pieces of this ecosystem that everybody needs and do it in a much better, faster, easier way. You know, and some of that's uh, very software intensive, maybe with a little bit of hardware. Some of it's more pure software, but, you know, I'm sure we'll learn more as we go. What are your, uh, y'all's requests for startups? Like, what, what do you want to uh-huh. see entrepreneurs pursue in hard tech? Like, what, what would you love to, to back or? see people's build. Yeah. Yeah. I have a few. I mean, I kind of alluded to one earlier. I'm loving, I'd love to see someone who has a really specific good way to destroy the Jupiter notebook, which Jupiter notebooks are amazing. They're so great and people love them. But I think there's some amount of learned helplessness when it comes to sort of the system of record of, of the data that's flowing through your company. Um, the analysis that people have done, the state of the art at most companies seems to be emailing, pasting things into Slack, SQL queries, records, you know, what your company's definition of a a core metric like LTV, it might sit in some people's heads. To me, that feels like it's good, but not great. And someone could probably fix it. And and then I'm also really interested in the, the applications and the tooling for some of what I think are the pieces in AI and ML that are getting exciting, very, getting very exciting very quickly, which to me, this is simulation based training, things like small data, uh, being able to take advantage of, of very, very powerful, uh, GPUs at the edge. It's kind of a broad request for startups, I suppose. Anyone, anything that turns sort of a one X engineer into a 10 X engineer or a hundred X engineer, I think is, is another metric I use. Trey, how about yours? Yeah. You know, I'd say one area that you know, we've been digging around in a lot that I, again, I think is super hard or involves a lot of interesting and, and kind of groundbreaking technology is, and we haven't touched on it yet is in this kind of emerging health tech sector and how um, a lot of this deep technology is changing 
what we know about ourselves and our health. And, um, and I think this is just so important given the, the healthcare system, especially in the U.S., the incentives are so misaligned and so broken. I think the only way to truly fix it is by allowing consumers themselves or companies that enable consumers themselves to really understand and learn a lot more about you know, their health situation and do more with it. And, and so specifically, you know, things from, you know, we've got the Apple watch, we've got all this ways, all these ways of measuring data points, but no one's used that to actually create true engaging information about what do I need to do and what should be, what should be happening. There's a, a whole bunch of emerging, really interesting stuff around the microbiome, which I do think is going to be next generation. You know, a lot of our the medical literature in 10 years is going to be about how important the microbiome is to our health and our mental health and our longevity. And these are all super, super hard problems that I think are incredibly fascinating. And, and we're definitely, um, you know, paying attention to those as well. Well, I don't think I've spoken to you, Trey, since you closed the second fund and you were uh, humble and not talking about it this whole time. So I wanted to <laughs> congratulate you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to have, you know, we've got now a $260 million fund. And so, you know, again, just to remind folks, we're looking for companies where, we're, you know, we can back them. Uh, we typically write checks from three to 10 million. Some people might call that a series A. Uh, those definitions are changing. Um, but, you know, our whole goal is to invest early and work side by side with entrepreneurs to help them scale. So thank you, Lee. I appreciate you, uh, you uh, uh, pointing that out. And yeah, and so if anybody listening has a company they want us to, to learn more about, um, all of our contact information is easily accessible. Um, I'm Trey at defy.bc. Awesome. Uh, and uh, you can learn more at defy.bc. And- and uh, Lee, people can learn more at root.bc. Yeah, so we're, we're a hard tech-focused seed fund. We tend to do checks around a million dollars, and we love doing anything where technical risk is, is front and center, where roadmap has to be developed, and uh, where we can kind of leverage some of our experience and also our networks and really all kinds of engineering. Kane's the kind of person who rides a motorcycle through the Andes, it breaks down, and he repairs it and continues on. Chrissy was the EPM on the first Apple Watch, the first EPM on the first Apple Watch. My interest is mostly in pure software. I've been at various software companies over over the last 10 years. Um, Lee, Trey, this has been a great episode. Thank you guys for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for the invite. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 